Hey, Janine. How's it going? Good, good. How are you? Good. It's good to finally meet you. I've been following you on Twitter for quite some time. Uh, you have awesome and spicy takes about <laughs> lockdowns that um, I'm, I'm so mystified why more people across the political spectrum aren't just like apoplectic about what we've done for the last two years, but you have been apoplectic, so congrats on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I have <laughs> for the entire two years. And it is uh, quite shocking, especially that the left and liberal side of the spectrum has been so accepting of all of these measures that uh, fail again and again, but nevertheless, they keep insisting upon them. Yeah, and I want to dig into that because you're either a lefty or a former lefty, and let's let's give people some context for who you are. Um, talk about your organization and a little bit about your your political journey to this point. Yeah, sure. So I was a public defender in New York for almost a decade, um, and you know that's a very sort of left. Uh, um, career and the people I was around were mostly from the left. I definitely considered myself a leftist, although I always had sort of different views. I didn't, I didn't just adopt wholesale any specific, um, you know, ideology or something. And I ha always had sort of differed from my comrades on like free speech, uh, stuff like that. But nevertheless, I would say for the most part, considered myself a leftist. But when uh, COVID hit, I really departed from everybody. I thought, first of all, this was just a horrendous civil liberties violation to tell people they can't leave their homes for weeks, months on end. Uh, you can't send your kids to school. You can't run your business. Um, you know, you can't see your loved ones. And I couldn't understand why the people around me didn't see it that way. And I also realized that it was going to harm mostly the poor and working class. Um, you know, the people the Zoom class could keep their paychecks, but it's really the poor people who rely upon, you know, going to work um, in customer service uh, who were going to be harmed the most by these. And it was stunning to me that that wasn't discussed more from the beginning. Um, so I became sort of active uh, in fighting lockdowns, mostly writing. I started to write for an organization called the American Institute for Economic Research, which um, hosted the Great Barrington Declaration a lot of people might have heard about, which... Yeah, we've had Phil... Oh, yeah. Uh, Phil Magnus and Jeffrey Tucker and another guy who's going to be pissed that I forget his name. <laughs> Matt. Um, it wasn't Matt. Anyway. Not Pete Earl. Pete. It was Pete, Pete Earl. Earl. Yeah. 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 yeah, we, yeah. Had, we had a really scintillating conversation about supply chain. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was very exciting. <laughs> He's a really good economist. But anyway, yeah, those are, uh, we're, we're big fans of AIER and the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so that was yeah. that, a, was that like a, uh, defining moment like when did you decide that lockdowns were a bad idea were you day one or pretty much from the beginning I mean, yeah. it was sort of my instinctual reaction and then sort of the people in the media around me you know were very much on the other side and so I doubted myself a few times and I was a pretty pretty avid New York Times reader even though I never I always had some issues with the New York Times but um I they published an article by someone named David Katz pretty early on saying like the costs of lockdowns might be more than the benefits and I thought he made a lot of really good points uh, they very shortly after that sort of stopped running anything that doubted this narrative. Um, but one thing that really tipped me off was their coverage of Sweden, because starting in like April of 2020, they were saying, oh, Sweden was a catastrophe, the failure of Sweden. And I'm like, you're very eager very early on to declare this a failure <laughs> when this is clearly like a long view. I mean, it was clear COVID wasn't going to be over in a month or something by then. So that suggested to me that there was, you know, sort of a politicization going on and a desire to... Um, to prove this narrative right uh and that the more i the more time went on the more i saw that this was really just the wrong way it was obvious these measures weren't working um i mean the idea that you can just 
put people apart like rats in cages and stop a disease is absurd. I mean, people exist and all you're doing is keeping them in their homes with each other and it's spreading in sort of maybe different ways than it would. But yeah. So what, um, um, when did you get associated with the New Civil Liberties Alliance? Um, so I began working there in April. I, so I, I, I continued working as a public defender. The more public I was, the more I was writing. Um, and I started a Twitter account that was very anti-lockdown. Um, the more I started getting uh, colleagues at my old job were stumbling across my work were very upset. Um, and I knew that it wasn't going to be a very good environment for me when I went back to the office. And I was also sort of this was taking up a lot of my time, the anti lockdown stuff, and I was trying to do my day job. So someone actually told me about the new Civil Liberties Alliance, which had been bringing some lawsuits against business closures or yeah. on behalf of them. Did you actually feel like um, shunned or like that you might not be able to keep that job? Um, my boss made it clear that he wasn't going to fire me. <laughs> But uh, so I wasn't really worried about getting fired, but I knew that I was sort of loathed. Um, yeah. I still am among those people for sure. Uh, which which uh, this is still like this is bizarre to me that this thing has become so fundamentally tribal. I don't I don't understand, but but we'll, we'll get into that some more. So you, you joined this this new thing. Yeah, um, that their sort of core mission is to fight the administrative state. Uh, the idea is that administrative agencies have way too much power. These are unelected officials, um, and they often go, you know, use statutes that Congress enacted in order to um, implement sort of uh, have a lot of control over Americans' yeah. lives. And we're seeing that actually with the vaccine. O OSHA mandates, might be pointed, exactly. proving that point. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the mission of NCLA, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, is sort of to start to chip away at some of this power um, and give it back to the people and their, their elected officials. So I joined them in April, and I've been doing uh, mostly vaccine mandate cases since then. So um, I think you were involved in the George Mason case. Is that yes, right? Yes, that's right. I was okay. actually the lead uh, the lead attorney. And that's um, Todd Zawicki yeah. was the plaintiff? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Talk, talk about that a little bit, because I haven't talked about it yet on the show. Oh, yeah. So uh, Professor Zwicky had natural immunity to COVID. He actually had a very bad bout of COVID uh, early on and had really high antibody levels. He did not want to get the vaccine, but George Mason University, where he was a tenured professor, law professor, um, implemented a vaccine mandate in the fall. And so we, um, we filed a lawsuit on his behalf. It ended up sort of settling out of court. He had another medical condition that GMU decided to grant him an exemption on that basis, I think because they didn't want to deal with the lawsuit. They just backed down. But, but he's, um, he's tweeting in the last couple of days that they're coming back with, with the full mandate again, right? Yeah, they're coming back with a booster mandate. And we've yeah. had, uh, I've heard from a couple of people, so stay tuned. We might... <laughs> GM, you might be hearing more from us. I hope so. I mean, this is this is this is everything because I think the implications of of the government bullying these institutions into doing this, or these institutions deciding for themselves that that they want to do this, it seems like a, a blank check to to dictate all sorts of uh, behavior, positive or negative. Right, right. And this, you know, this the implications of these booster mandates. I mean, I'm very opposed to the vaccine mandates in the first place, but this sort of takes it to a different level where now it's just an ongoing intrusion into your life. I mean, is it, I mean, is it every six months? I think even San Francisco is now saying you have to have to, you know, in order to comply with their proof of vaccination to go into places of public accommodation, you have to show that you're up to date. Yeah. I think they, they're calling it up to date. So now it's just, you know, and with that, and frankly, this is a vaccine that's now outdated, really doesn't seem to work very well against the Omicron variant. And we haven't had long-term studies on the effects of getting a booster 
every few months. So yeah. it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely going to affect my life personally. Cause I, I eventually got vaccinated last year, um, because my wife and I do lots of international travel and we, yeah. we were, we were told that if we got vaccinated, we would be free to go about our business. Well, it, that, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't true, but, but then I got, um, COVID presumably, oh, yeah. presumably Delta, a significant, I mean, I didn't feel like I was going to die or anything, but it lasted a couple of weeks and it was yeah. pretty rough. So I am not in the market ever for a booster and my libertarian side just sort of doesn't want to do it yeah, because yeah. they're doing that. But it's, um, it's gonna, like, it's gonna affect people, particularly people with natural immunity who are like, you know, it might, might actually not be a smart health decision to get boosted. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, the, now there's data coming out, especially for men under 30 or 40 about the myocarditis risks, which, you know, the aid, government agencies like the CDC have been downplaying in a, sh in a pretty shocking way. I mean, um, I think they were initially saying it was you know, like one in millions. Now it's looking like it's one in 2000 men that age get myocarditis i think just after vaccination the first time not even necessarily the booster yeah and there's there's been a pretty significant attempt to downplay the implications i talked to this cardiologist a lot named uh, anish coca he's a very very uh, esteemed cardiologist and he was saying you know they keep saying oh my myocarditis just resolved you get crushing chest pain you go to the hospital with crushing chest pain you have enzymes leaking from your heart scar tissue forms which could could cause heart attacks earlier down the road. So all these young men could be dropping dead of heart attacks at 40 instead of 60 or, you know. Um, and so to be dismissing this and to leave yeah. personal choice out of the equation is just shocking to me. And that there is this, I mean, it's um, as much as the social media censors want to stop it, like it's, it's hard to miss the fact that soccer players are dropping on the field. Yes, yeah. Um, they can't really downplay that because it's happening and it's, it's, just radically unusual yes yeah yeah um and uh, like the 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 one thing that i think well there's so many implications of this that are that are uh game changing but one thing that i was frustrated with when i was trying to figure out whether or not i would get vaccinated um i did it basically because my wife was going to do it and i didn't want her to turn into a zombie and me have to like put her, put her down. That would that would be an awful way to end our marriage. So I figured we could z shuffle off into zombie heaven together. Um, but when I tried to research um, my own particular health situation, all I found was propaganda. Yeah. E even yeah. in even in the health science journals, and and one th one thing that's so shocking to me is is how the the CDC in particular, but 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 all of these public health organizations it's all propaganda why why do you think that is Oof, that's a good question um i don't know i think that the, the best interpretation i think is that they think it's easier it's just easier to tell everybody to go get the shot um you know if you die of a heart attack 10 years earlier than you would have without it that's very hard to prove and they're never going to be blamed for that but covid cases which is ridiculous to even be counting cases though this point but it's another subject um are, it's you know they'll, they'll be blamed for covid cases so they think that they just tell everyone to get the vaccine um that's better for them i mean there's also just the question of profit i mean pharma is making a huge profit off this um and i think that's a likely explanation for part of what's going on 
Yeah, the 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 intertwined nature. So I watched the Rogan Malone interview. Yeah. We all sort of snuck off into a dark corner and watched this. Um, Before, didn't it get taken down or something? Yeah, um, it, is it off Spotify now? I think it's off, yeah. That's, that's, that's amazing weird. to me. So naturally, everybody's now going to watch, watch it more. It, yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the one thing that I learned from hearing that interview, and I, and I knew this, but like it's amazing how intertwined the... Um, research arm of the government and the, the funding of, of government research grants is with pharmaceutical companies. And, and it's not at all clear where the line is between public and private when it comes to, to a lot of, of uh, healthcare products that come out of pharmaceutical companies, but particularly this vaccine. Yeah. Um, so I think there's um, that the profit motive is is quite interesting because if I was a private company and I could get the government to mandate that everybody has to get the shot and then get boosted, like that's a good business model. Yeah, yeah. But it's empowered by <laughs> it's, the fact that, you know, the monopoly power of the state, I mean, sure, uh, private companies want to make money, but um, only the government can force everybody to take this, this right. vaccine. That seems like a pretty toxic mix. It is, yeah. And I mean, it's, leading to a huge breakdown, I think, in, in trust between the public and these health authorities. I, you know, everyone, people don't feel as though they can go to their doctor and get individualized um, advice. They know their doctor's just going to tell them, get the shot, get the booster, get <laughs> the fourth shot, the fifth shot. Um, yeah. Because, because, I mean, they're, they're protecting themselves. Yes. Because if they would give you real advice, they could then be blamed for not um, doing the right thing or or not in an abundance of caution, one of my most hated phrases. Yeah. Um, like, just just get the shot, and it's not it's not a good decision for everybody. No, and I mean, I know that I've heard stories from doctors have been told not to write an exemption request, medical exemption requests. So a lot of doctors are being intimid intimidated sometimes by the uh, state health authorities. Yeah. So you recently wrote a piece that I recommend to everybody, and if you can, give me the citation, but the case against vaccinating children, I'm probably butchering the title oh. but 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 tell me what that article was and 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 make the case maybe the, the cases against mandating that children yeah. get vaccinated so i actually wrote two one was in tablet and one was in the wall street journal i they're they're similar but the tablet one's a lot longer um well so the case against vaccinate forcing children to be vaccinated and i i say forced i mean so the other side the people in favor of mandates are always saying and, and frankly a lot of the judges you're not being forced you know we're not tying you to a bed and forcing you to get a vaccine we're just making your job contingent upon it or in the case of all of these cities that are mandating vaccination in order to go into a restaurant or a movie theater you know your participation in public life essentially so i actually think the same arguments apply to adults it's just sort of writ large with children because um there, you know, there have been far fewer studies conducted of the health effects on children and children face such a low risk of COVID that it's clear that they're just sort of being used in order to protect adults, although it doesn't even work because, you know, first of all, we know the vaccine doesn't stop transmission that much yeah. at this point, et cetera, et cetera. But it's more like assuaging adults' irrational fear, really. Um, so, I mean, because children face such a low risk from COVID, it's highly unethical uh, to mandate vaccination for them and to, you know, uh, New York City now, kids as young as five have to show proof of vaccination to go into a restaurant. It's crazy. Or a movie theater, participate in um, sports with their peers. So you're so parents are put in this horrible position of having to uh, decide between what they think is in their kids' best interest health-wise and forcing them to be essentially excommunicated from society. 
Uh, what happened? I mean, what happens? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, cities are mandating vaccines for kids to go back to school. Yeah. Is give me an example of that. And, and what happens if you as a parent say, no, I'm not going to do that? I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I hope that there are a lot of lawsuits, especially against public schools. It's much easier with public schools because it's essentially the government. So you can make constitutional arguments. Um, a lot of these you know, arguments really haven't been tested because we've never faced anything like this. You know, and, and in my cases, the government, the other side, the government is always saying things like, well, we've always required school children to get vaccines. Yeah, but you know, those are for, for diseases that pose a risk, a significant risk to children. For vaccines that have been tested for decades, um, this vaccine has, has been tested a much shorter period of time. Uh, so these are really, it's really not the same thing. Not to mention the fact that typically, you know, you get one. You don't get the MMR vaccine every six months. Yeah. Uh, so this is, it's a really different circumstance. We've also, I guess we've changed the definition of vaccine to accommodate this vaccine. Yeah. Even though like vaccines typically are a solution. Right. Like one and done. Boom. It's 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 a done thing, but obviously at this point, that's that's why the logic of all this is so confusing because um, forcing kids to get vaccinated doesn't appear at this point to provide any protection for the teachers that seem so afraid of the students, does it? No, no, and again, because the vaccine isn't sterilizing and doesn't appear to be that good at stopping transmission, it's unclear if it ever was, but now with the emergence of new variants, it appears even less so. Um, but, you know, the, and I, I keep encountering this, they're always sort of conflating the arguments. So, for instance, the OSHA case, the Supreme Court um, heard argument last Friday, Justice Breyer said something about, you know, uh, well, you're saying that if we enforce the mandate that this will have economic consequences because people will quit. But maybe all these people will quit because they don't want to work around unvaccinated others. He actually used that term. Um, I mean, if the vaccine doesn't stop transmission, why should people be afraid? And even Rochelle Walensky, the CDC director, admitted that the vaccines don't stop transmission. So to, this is just a complete myth at this point. Uh, so they conflate that. And then they'll often say things like, well, the government is entitled or your employer is entitled to force you to take a vaccine to have like less work absenteeism. Because, if you know, if you get sick from COVID, you might be gone for a while. Well, that's just paternalistic. And at that point, if, you know, your employer can, should your employer be able to force you to exercise and maintain a certain BMI so that you, you're healthier and you're more productive? I mean, it's extremely ironic that it's the people who claim to champion the American worker who are, you know, uh, actually advocating for a world in which the employer and the government have complete control over every aspect of their lives. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm quitting my gym. I, I live on Capitol Hill and I'm quitting my gym tomorrow because the mayor has decided that I have to show proof of vaccination to go to the gym and I'm not going to do it, but I'm, I'm sort of inclined and I'm, I'm, I'm torn because um, I suspect a lot of the people working at this gym totally agree with me. Yeah. And yeah. They, they, they've started their, their emails about masks and vaccines are more and more apologetic as we mm. go along. But like, um, I want to say to them, but I won't because I'm not an asshole. Like, can you show me your papers? Yeah, yeah. And if you're going to show me your vaccination papers, maybe I need to know other things about your health history to know yep. whether or not I'm safe coming to your gym. And so the like the the rabbit hole of that, but it's um, it's it's devastating, I think, to the to the district economy because the the reason I live in a district was um, concerts and restaurants and and culture, and I'm, I can't do that stuff anymore because I don't want to. Like, I don't want to keep following rules that I don't think make any sense. 
Yeah, I I know. I mean, I I feel the exact same way. And there's something humiliating about having to show your. You quit your gym too, right? I did quit my gym. Or did you get kicked out? I think you got. I. (laughs) It's a a long story. I I I got kicked out for not. Well, I quit before they kicked me out. for not for refusing to wear a mask then i joined another gym that then i quit when the masks came back so i bought a peloton um <laughs> yeah that's what uh, those of us we are i guess in the laptop class so yeah. we we have the um ability to sort of do workarounds that that a lot of people working class folks that that are getting beat over the head with this stuff don't have that opportunity yeah exactly i mean it's it's again the people who don't have the means that are being harmed the most by these policies yeah and i want to get into that but you mentioned the supreme court and yeah. and you um we are in a situation where the oral arguments have happened but they've made no stays or decisions at this point and that could happen at any time that's true. so we'll qualify anything you say as as potentially being totally wrong because we don't know what's going to happen but you had been um, basically live tweeting the proceedings, yeah. which is how I followed along with it. And it was mostly depressing hearing the arguments, um, even from both sides, but the, but, the, but, the, but the fundamental lack of knowledge on sort of the, the left side of the court about all this stuff was pretty shocking to me. It was. I think Sotomayor said at one point, 100,000 children are in critical condition on ventilators. I think she meant like comma on ventilators, but still, I mean, that's so much, so many more. Uh, I think it's maybe a couple thousand and that's like with COVID, not, you know, that's yeah. not necessarily a just shocking lack of knowledge. Uh, and this again, this insistence that the vaccine stopped transmission, which is sort of the main justification for mandates. Um, Sotomayor also appeared not to understand that the federal government isn't supposed to have police power, (laughs) which is a little bit disturbing. Um, So I was, I mean, it's depressing that we're even in this territory, let's put it that way. It sounded to me like six of the nine justices had very grave doubts about the constitutionality of the mandate. Um, And even Breyer at some point, who was one of the three liberals, he voiced some concerns. I don't think he's ultimately going to vote against the mandate, but... um, if I was going to guess, I think that they're going to strike it down. And there's there's some indication that there might be a decision on Thursday. Okay, so, so it it seems like, I'm not a lawyer, um, but um, Randy Barnett, who you may know of, um, yeah. conv- has convinced me that um, not all um, Supreme Court proceedings are based on questions of constitutionality, but it seemed like much of the argument had nothing to do with whether or not the federal government had the constitutional right to do this, um, they were they were debating you know the facts and the circumstances and the, and all that stuff. What what is the balance? What is it supposed to be, and what is it in practice? Well, so because the OSHA statute um, basically says that uh, the that OSHA can enforce employers to enact certain rules and regulations in the workplace when there's a grave danger and a necessity. So those words, I think there were fights about whether those words, you know, mean COVID and whether, you know, what's necessary. Is it necessary if there are alternatives such as masking or not that I think masking works, (laughs) Um, you know, so that's why a lot of uh, you just got our YouTube video banned. (laughs) I've said it a million times. Um, So there are a lot of questions. So I think that's how the facts came into play. You know, is this a grave danger? Well, it's, you know, it's COVID doesn't pose a grave danger to a 20 year old. Um, So so I think that's why they got in. It makes some sense that they got into the to the facts a little bit in that 
respect. Um, but ultimately, I think what sh- what the ultimate issue is that OSHA is supposed to be about workplace safety. It's supposed to be about the employer having to protect the employee from workplace hazards, sort of things that, you know, you encounter as a result of a, a specific job. So, like, I don't know if you're a construction worker having access to a helmet or, you know, rocks don't fall on you, stuff like that. It's not supposed to be about regulating your behavior outside the workplace or or protecting you from a disease that's at this point omnipresent, really. And and hopefully the court will see it that way. Yeah. So what happens if they don't? If they don't, it's very bad. <laughs> I It's very concerning. And I think, as I said earlier, I think this will allow for sort of limitless intrusion. Um, I mean, what happened here is that these statutes were not, they, they were designed for something totally different again like workplace uh hazards this the federal contractor one is similar it's actually even just more concerning because that's uh was based on the procurement act which um is about efficient and economic procurement of government contracts so so biden used that to say well uh government contracts will be more efficiently procured if the workers are healthy i mean that is an absurd interpretation of that statute so i think if the court allows these statutes to be used in this way, again, it just means um, the federal government will basically have have limitless uh, power over people's lives, which is certainly not intended by the Constitution, isn't good for anybody, and is, is also not you know consistent with any form of liberalism. It strikes me that the, the court, the Supreme Court in particular, has not been the bulwark against civil liberties violations and defending constitutional rights that that's the function it's supposed to play. And I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even Gorsuch, who's one of my favorites, was arguing very practically that um, the a vaccine mandate would be the prerogative of the Congress or the states. And I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't give me that much assurance, <laughs> particularly living in the District of Columbia. I don't, I don't know where my mayor gets these extraordinary powers that she uses to impose on us, but either you have a constitutional right or you don't. And I don't, I don't. Um, if Cuomo does it to me instead of 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 Biden, I don't. I'm not winning. That's true, um, and I agree with that. And I, you know, I I disagree with all mandates, but I think the. F- I think at least when it's left to the states, we know a lot of the states won't do this. So at least there'll be sort of, you know, places to go within the United States. An um, escape hatch. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, whereas if, you know, if the federal government is permitted to do this, then we're sort of looking at a very different... Uh, well, Florida's going to get very crowded. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I started looking at places there. <laughs> I feel bad that I didn't get in early. But, yeah. Uh, um, um, but I'm sort of trapped in the belly of the beast. Yeah. Um, so... The, the court is going to decide this. I, I actually assume for probably more for tribal reasons and constitutional reasons that the court's going to go the right way because there seems to be a majority that wouldn't be inclined to do this. But again, I'm not a lawyer. and I Yeah, I, I w- I'm getting a little worried that there hasn't been an administrative stay issued um, because... That, that's sort of not looking very much at the constitutionality or the merits at all. It's just like there's an imminent deadline. So yesterday was actually the day on which people would have to start to achieve the full course of vaccination by the current deadline. I think it's February 9th or something. Um, so th- so we were hoping to see an administrative stay by then. 
the fact that the court, though, has indicated that it'll have decisions on Thursday is maybe signaling to people they don't need to worry too much. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's such a it's such a wicked game, though. Like, imagine if your livelihood and your family's oh, yeah. income is at stake. And and I want to pivot to that because I um, this is all very depressing to me. The last two years have been extremely depressing. Um, the public's lack of anger against this stuff has been sort of maddening to me. Yeah. But I also see um, um, quite often when when things get really bad, you you see this 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 pushback emerging, and 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 people like you might be the key to this because you you were at a point um, you know five years ago where you you voted for Bernie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, so you were a Bernie bro, yeah. And I and this I've talked a lot about um, uh, Bernie and 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 how in a lot of ways he's quite similar in his rhetoric to to someone like Ron Paul. Yeah. Um, even though they you know philosophically they might be on polar opposites, but you know Bernie was always raging against the machine, right? And the yeah. machine was crony capitalism. The machine was the never-ending wars. Um, the machine was the prison industrial complex, and of course, Ron Paul could give the same speech about those same things, but the disconnect was always um, that these things that are essentially a collusion between big business and big government, including like the war machine, is yeah. is both, right? Yeah. Um, and then Bernie ends the speech with, that's why we need to grow the size of government. I'm like, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't jive with me. Yeah. So I wonder if there is an opportunity to engage people, particularly people that might lose their jobs or healthcare workers that are gonna get fired even though they have natural immunity. Is there a way to reignite those, what I would call constitutional principles, but but more importantly, like human principles, uh, the right to speak your mind, the right to work, the right to leave your house? Yeah. I mean, these are crazy radical principles, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, well. But uh, where, where, where's the American spirit that says we need to defend that stuff? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people are pretty complacent, and I think I, I don't mean to insult them too much, but I think are pretty happy just to, you know, play on their smartphones or whatever. <laughs> but well, I Well, will that would say, be the laptop class, yeah. right? Like people that make their livings in a way that they can sort of shelter in place and, and, and expect someone else to bring their food to their door. Um, you now have two classes of people where, you know, it used to be white collar, but it's not really white collar anymore. Yeah. It's whether or not you're in that information sector of the economy, which is huge. Right. I mean, I and I do think part of what's going on is actually a number of people are actually happier this way. Um, you know, they get to stay at home. They, get, they don't have to get up early and commute. Um, their lives are easier. And I think now they can wrap it in virtue. I'm staying home and staying safe and stopping the spread and blah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when did you ever get to do I'm, that? I'm better, I'm better than you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I do think it's sort of mobile. It's starting to mobilize people. And I see more and more people, uh, I would say, every day. And, um, you know, people from my old life reach out to me and say, like, you were right all along. Actually, finally, my dad, who's who didn't agree with me, called me yesterday and said, you were right all along. <laughs> so... Um, that must have felt good. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, and I think the more extreme this gets, the more some people are waking up. Um, but then some are just hardening in their positions as well. Which is, yeah. It's hard. I mean, it's hard to admit that you were wrong about something so consequential, I suppose. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the explanations for politicians that keep doubling down, even though there's the, the even their own data doesn't as cooked as it may be, their own data doesn't defend 
their positions anymore, but um, it's not a typical political instinct to to stand up and say, you know what, guys, I screwed it up. I screwed yeah. up everything. Um, I, I think actually think that that honesty might be rewarded, but they're not inclined to do that. So there's like this political equilibrium where, well, we said we were going to do this and we're going to keep locking down until COVID's gone away. As absurd as that is, they seem like, like Australian yep. government seems like we're going to do this even if we have to kill all these sons of bitches to keep them safe. Right. I mean, it's crazy to see them just keep re- implementing again and again these failed measures, masks. And um, va- I mean, in New York, the vaccine, New York's had the vaccine uh, passport program for the longest. I sort of distinguish it by saying passport is like the city, you know, where you have to show it to get in and every- everywhere in mandate. I use to describe like employer mandates. Um, New York has had it for quite some time. I mean, they actually started one last April through Cuomo, which was sort of which was done away with over the summer when COVID um, eased up a bit. And then de Blasio did one just for New York City starting in the fall. I mean, it's been a complete failure. New York cases are through the roof, if that's how you're counting it. But then all of these other cities now, Chicago, Boston. It's, it's their measure. This, so, yeah. yeah. And it's like, well, we can't come up with anything else. So let's try this thing that didn't work at all <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's completely absurd. And, and people aren't holding them accountable. It's, it's really surprising to me that, uh, you know, people seem to want it to some extent. Because I think it, I think people enjoy this. Like we're the good people; they're the bad people. That's yeah, that's yeah. The the, and that that to me, like again, civil libertarians, left, right, libertarian, whatever. You hear the 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 rhetoric out of someone like Macron in France, oh, yeah. or um, what's his name in Canada. Um, Trudeau, yeah. Yeah, like it. Oh, I, I, know. I know we're not allowed to use the f word, but <laughs> it feels kind of of fascist to so explicitly divide the population between us and them yeah and declare them non-citizens because non-citizens oh i can do anything we want to those people and and i guess no sense of irony in france that uh, guys you're aware that this has been done before and (laughs) maybe it's not a good idea i know so we just keep going down this path um, and I, I, I was trying to pivot to something optimistic, and this doesn't sound that optimistic. <laughs> but, but I think uh, I think it's an opportunity to wake people up, and and I do think there's some sort of political realignment happening. And and I don't I don't think it's going to be left versus right. And mm-hmm. this is my optimistic side. Like it it could be um, civil libertarian versus authoritarian. That's what I see happening yeah. as well. And, you know, I, it, you know, if it gives people some hope, I mean, I, I thought government was the solution to a lot of things. And I didn't really have a problem with big government for a long time. And this has completely changed my point of view. I mean, the incompetence, <laughs> the, the doubling down on failed measures, the lack of regard for people's well-being, civil liberties, constitutional rights. Um, I can't imagine ever, ever being in favor of a large federal government again. I mean, I'm, I've definitely become a federalist at the very least. I think a lot of it's important to have you know strong states uh, because at least that gives you the opportunity again to like go somewhere else if yeah. you don't like it. Um, as a tactic, I'm very much a federalist, and I, I I love the fact that there are good states and bad states that so ultimately we would have an opportunity to escape. But but ultimately, I'm I'm an individualist, and and I yeah. I can see local governments and state governments and and my city government being incredibly tyrannical as well. Yeah. Um, so it. You know the the constitutional principle was was more about you know they threw the Tenth Amendment in there, but it was really about the rights of the individual, um, yeah. which 
again, might be the basis of that, that, that civil libertarian coalition. I saw, I forget his name, but you were on a podcast with a friend of yours who's an actor from New York. Uh, Clifton Duncan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he struck me as another guy. He, he described himself as red-pilled. Yeah, yeah. And he had um, sort of immersed, his entire life immersed in sort of a, a, a left culture but was jarred out of it, um, not immediately, but, but I, I take it that his, his, his ability to earn a living was pretty much upended in New York City because yeah. he just couldn't perform. Exactly, and now he, uh, he's an actor and he won't get the vaccine. So uh, he's been basically excluded from any, you can't audition or you can't be part of the Screen Actors Guild. So um, yeah, his career has been more or less ruined. It's insane. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but do you meet a lot of people like this? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you mean actors or just well, just people? just people that are and and maybe they never gave a damn about politics, but it, it strikes me that um, there's an opportunity to, for people to wake up and say, "Wow, this whole system's corrupt." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually have like a whole group in New York because I, I lived in New York for a long time, um, and it's mostly people who are, you know used to vote Democrat, and we have a slogan of Democrats for DeSantis actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, who you know, and now just are really disillusioned with the Democratic Party, and I think none of us will ever vote Democrat again, at least unless they change, you know, drastically. Yeah. Um, that said, um, what's his name? The the minority leader in the House, who is so oh. milk toast that I can't remember his yeah, name. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> um, it's it's Pete something, I think. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He's he he put out a statement of what would happen if if Republicans took the House, and it was like it was like a big, lame yawn, <laughs> nothing burger. Um, the only problem with defeating the Democrats is then then you have to deal with Republicans, and and you have you have people like DeSantis who I've said lots of nice things about, but yeah. um, he he is probably making it safe for other Republicans to to be more bold on this. Um, because politically he's benefiting, I think he's he's become like a leader in the in the Republican Party. But um, I worry that if there is a huge turnover next year, which I I actually think will happen, yeah. um, then you're stuck with Republicans. And you know, will they have the guts to unwind the administrative state that has done all of this lockdown stuff? I'm not that confident. Um, it has it's going to have to come from people demanding it and that's that's why this this new coalition matters so much because people people have to push to get politicians to do anything useful yeah that's true i mean and yeah i'm, I'm certainly not a republican i mean i couldn't agree, dis, could not disagree with them more on certain topics uh, especially like war and uh, i'm very pro-choice etc and very socially liberal so but on the other hand, you, I you may be a closet libertarian. <laughs> I don't want to uh, out oh. you, but no, I call myself a libertarian now, a sort of left-leaning libertarian, I guess. Yeah. Um, but they, I mean, so I'm not, you know, I don't love the Republicans, but I want the Democrats to be, to I want them to get creamed so that they know that, you know, <laughs> there are plenty of us who don't think kids should be kept out of school and forced to wear N95s and va- yeah. get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, like in other countries, like I, I've, I've been waiting for the anti-lockdown political backlash um and and i think it's more about incumbents who lock down and they they could be right wing left wing i mean the uh, what's his name in in the uk who's this johnson 
Yeah, Boris Johnson. <laughs> like like he was he was Mr. Brexit. Yeah. Uh, he was like the Trump of the UK, but he's been insanely locked down. And I'd like to see a backlash against him. Yeah. Even though I won't particularly like the people that beat him, but that the political incentive to do the right thing has to be proven at the polls. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Do you know Martin Kuldorf, one of the great Barrington, yeah, yeah. the Harvard, former Harvard, Harvard uh, epidemiologist? I mean, he was saying in Sweden, he's actually, as an anti-lockdowner, he's on the left and it's the right who wants lockdowns, which actually in a lot of ways makes some sense to me because yeah. it's... I, I always thought, you know, the right was sort of over, overly afraid the way they reacted to 9-11 and, you know, uh, willing to strip people of civil liberties for safetyism. So I, if I was going to predict, I actually thought it would have been the right that had done this. Yeah. And it like it I would have as well in a in a certain way, because there's also that appeal to authority. Yeah. Um, do the right thing kind of thing that runs through at least at least part of the, the conservative movement. Um, so it might have been like, even though. You know, a lot of this might have been anti-Trump backlash. Yeah, I've seen you talk about this yeah. as well. But people forget that that Trump is the guy that platformed Anthony Fauci. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fauci was That's just funny. a bureaucrat until Trump put him on stage. And I, I'm sure Trump regrets that now. But, yeah. But Trump was talked into the lockdown sort of logic as well. That's right. I mean, Trump wasn't great on any of this. Uh, but... He did sort of, you know, he waffled and he didn't, he made a couple statements indicating he didn't take it all that seriously. And I think that prompted the, uh, the left to just go completely crazy. I mean, yeah, his instinct, like his instinct, his original instinct on lockdowns was right. And he he basically said, we can't do that. And and masks. I mean, he sort of laughed them off because, you know, then the, (laughs) then the administrative state to to bring this full circle. (laughs) Um, and it is, and let's, let's end with that because, uh, give it, give a shout out to your organization and talk about other projects you guys are doing to, to rein in the administrative state. Is it all, is the entire strategy sort of legal to challenge them in the courts or is there more to it? Um, yeah, well, challenging them, challenging in the courts. I mean, we're just a law organization, although we do some stuff with the media, but, um, I mean, I would say the big mission is to end uh, Chevron deference. That's, you know, Chevron was this case where the the Supreme Court said that if there's a statute is ambiguous, that the court should defer to the agency's interpretation, which just gives agencies an immense amount of power. Um, So we sort of look for cases to bring um, in hopes that we can sort of change that uh, that approach. Um, So we've done a number of vaccine mandate cases, but we do a lot of other... um, a lot of other related cases. We actually did some of the eviction moratorium cases, which are related. It was the CDC, you know, which did not have the authority to do this e- all. Equally, <laughs> equally absurd. Yeah, exactly. At least that one came out the right way. Um, you know, saying that that uh, landlords couldn't evict tenants because of what caused spread of COVID, which is absurd. Um, and the CDC doesn't have the authority to do that. Uh, we've had we've had some other cases. We do some Title IX cases. So that's where, uh, in particular, faculty are dismissed or um, fired because of allegations of sexual misconduct, often without any due process at all. So we had a client who um, was a tenured, on tenure track at Cornell. A student made an allegation against him, so some sort of sexual assault uh, allegation. And he actually, it looked like he had fired her. She was a, a TA. She wasn't very good at her job and seemed like she had done it out of revenge. And he wasn't even in the country when she said this happened. But he wasn't allowed any due process, so he wasn't 
given the right to present any sort of evidence to show that he wasn't in the country um, and emails where she had said she was going to get revenge on him for firing her and stuff like that. So, you know, we do a number of cases where uh, people are deprived of their um, sort of basic due process rights, uh, also in administrative proceedings. And how do people follow you to get these spicy takes on this, what the Supreme Court does? <laughs> well, um, my name is Janine Yunus, J-E-N-I-N, and my last name is Y-O-U-N-E-S. And I'm my Twitter handle is at LeftyLockdowns1, which is a long story. I When I made the Twitter account, I did not understand how Twitter works, so it was Lefty Lockdown Skeptic, and then it cut off. And I didn't realize that the handle was really important. And now I'm afraid to change it because I have a lot of followers. <laughs> it, it sounds like I'm pro-lockdown, but yeah. the opposite. <laughs> Well, it, all you have to do is read a few tweets and yeah. get realize. Thanks again yeah. for doing this. This oh, has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people. 